Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you. Welcome to RUF Stackhouse Edition. Thank you for uh, being flexible and making the shift. And like Zach said, we will be back in Hillel next week. Uh, my name is Lewis Lovett. I'm the RUF Campus Minister. Uh, if you're new to RUF, if this is your first time, please come. I'd love to meet you. Please introduce yourself to me. Really, really glad that you're here. I know that a lot is going on. I know that a lot is being thrown at you here at the beginning of the semester. And then you have a ton of options for how to spend your time. So, so thanks for taking this hour to, to be together with this community. REF really is a community. Uh, this is a, a group of students that is trying to respond to God's love for us by loving him, by loving each other, by loving this campus. And, and one of the ways that we're trying to, to wrestle with the, the incredible questions that come along with that, the incredible challenges that come along with that, is by looking through in our large groups the Gospel of John in a series that we're calling Jesus Gives Us Life. And so uh, tonight we're going to talk about how Jesus gives us a life of joy. And we're going to do it using a, a very familiar story for some of you. It's the story of Jesus' first miracle when he turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. So if you have your Bible or your handout or a mobile device, it would be great if you could have John 2 in front of you and read along with me. We're going to read John 2, verses 1 through 12. John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. You pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of this night. Thank you for this hour to stop from work and to breathe and to remember how good you are, how much you love us. I pray that you would be with us in this time as we look at your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be working through it so that we might love you more and love each other. In Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. I uh, listened to the first Harry Potter book on my, on my phone this summer while I was running. It's not very pump-up, but it's really fun. keeps your mind off the pain in the knees. And uh, in the first Harry Potter book, Harry is discovering this magical world, and he and his friends discover the magical world of Hogwarts Castle, the famous school for witchcraft and wizardry. And one night in Harry's first year, as he is escaping from trouble underneath his invisibility cloak, he comes across a room, and inside the room is this magic mirror. It's called the Mirror of Erised. And the magic of the mirror is that if you stand in front of the mirror and you look right at it, it doesn't actually show your reflection 
it shows a reflection of what your life would look like if all of your deepest desires came true. It shows you what you'd most want your life to look like. And so Harry, who has never known his parents or his family, sees himself standing with his mother and father and his family all around him. His best friend Ron comes another night, and Ron, who's always been overshadowed by the success and accomplishments of his older brothers, sees himself standing alone as a hero, as a success. What would you see if you looked into that magical mirror? What picture of your life would you see, the picture of what you would like your life to look like, of what the perfect life would be, of the deepest desires of your heart coming true? Now, of course, we don't need a magic mirror. It's what you think about when you lay in bed at night. It's what you think about when you're bored and zoning out and fourth floor laboring. It's what you Google on your computer. We think about these things all the time. And one of the temptations of this life is to spend so much time dwelling on what we wish our life looked like that we forget that the experience of our life right now as it really is might be the kind of thing that could actually give us an experience of joy. Dumbledore warns Harry of this. He says it does not do, he catches him in here a few nights later, he says it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. And sometimes we forget to live. Sometimes we forget to be in the reality of the life that God has given us here and now. But Jesus actually came to give us life. We, we, we talked last week in John 1 about how this word made flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, the one through whom all things were made. We, we read that in him was life. And it came into the world. In John 10, Jesus tells us he came to give us life and life abundantly. Jesus came to give us life. And as we look at John 2 this evening, what we're going to see is that Jesus gives us a life of joy. So I want to talk about just two things tonight. Uh, The first is that Jesus transforms our need into joy. And the second is that Jesus transforms our normalcy into joy. He transforms our need and he transforms our normalcy. So first, Jesus transforms our need. Jesus uh, has been invited to this wedding in Cana. Jesus is from Nazareth. Cana is the next town north. It's like Buena Vista. It's like the next town over. Okay. And, and he's been invited along with his mother and his friends. Uh, right at the end of John 1, Jesus has just called the first disciples. So he's got five disciples with him as he goes to this wedding. And, and he doesn't just show up for his miraculous debut. These are friends of his. He knows them. So you can imagine that Jesus is enjoying himself, that he's talking with people, that he's eating and drinking, that he's laughing and telling stories and embracing. He's actually with people that he knows. And, and weddings at this time were a, a really big deal in the life of a community. It's a celebration that would last an entire week and involve the whole family, but really the whole, the whole neighborhood, really the whole town. And right at the beginning of the story, we find out what need is, is happening. The wine runs out. It's hard for us to probably comprehend how big of a deal this is. This is not just a party foul. This is not just an inconvenience. This is not just, well, better call traveler because I guess the night's over and we're going to move on to the next thing. This is actually his situation with enormous social and relational consequences. For this, for this wedding party to, to run out of wine, 
uh, the whole family would have been socially excluded. They would have been made fun of. They would have been cast out from the, the goings-on of the community. They would have been looked down on. They would have been talked about. They would have even been seen as a, as a bad omen for this newly married couple. If they, if they are ever going to make anything of themselves. Because you have an obligation, you have a duty, it's part of your responsibility to provide for this week of celebration. And to fail at that has enormous consequences. So this is actually a moment of panic. It's a moment of crisis. Uh, It's a moment like uh, many of you may have experienced where you fear, uh, I'm about to get exposed. People are about to find out the truth about me. Oh, please, God, let it not happen. That's the kind of feeling that they're having right now. And in the midst of this, Mary, Jesus' mother, finds out. And I don't know why she knows. I don't know if she just happened to be in the room as they were looking for more wine. Uh, Maybe it's because she's so good friends with the family. But she finds out, and she asks Jesus, and they have this really odd conversation. This is one of those parts of the Bible where we wish we could hear the tone of voice because it doesn't seem to make sense. I want to read this conversation, and this is verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. And I'll just say a few things about it. Sorry, in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So I just want to say a few comments about this before we go on. The, the first is that Jesus uh, calls his woman mother. This is not a, a derogatory exclamation. This isn't like, oh, sorry, he calls her woman. He's not like, hey, woman. Like, that's not what's happening. It's actually a term of respect. And the only other time that Jesus uses this word woman is actually at the end of his life when he's hanging on the cross about to die and he looks down and he sees his mother and he sees his best friend, John, and he says, woman, behold your son. He's actually entrusting her into the care of his best friend so that John will take Mary into his home and provide for her. That's the only other time Jesus says this to a, to a woman. So it's actually a term of respect, not of disrespect. Uh, the second is that Jesus says, uh, it is not yet my hour. What does he mean by that? Not yet my hour for what? Well, as it becomes clear through the rest of the, uh, the rest of the Gospel of John, the, w- the way that John describes miracles is signs. Signs that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Signs to reveal the fullness of his glory. And Jesus is saying, it's not time for everyone to know the fullness of my glory yet. And, and as you read the story, you notice that this does not get contradicted. The rest of the guests don't know what happened. Just Jesus and his mother and his disciples and then these servants. So the hero of the story, if you're at the wedding, is the bride and the groom and the master of the feast, not Jesus. So he actually doesn't reveal his glory except a a chosen few. The the last thing I'll say is this. After Jesus says, "Uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not yet my hour. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Uh, This is not kind of apathetic resignation and it's not passive-aggressive presumption either. It's hopeful expectation and submission. It's, it's, it's Mary saying, Jesus, I hear you and I trust you. Servants, if he tells you to do something, do it. If not, you can trust him. Okay? So, so with, with that in mind, in this moment of crisis and panic and need, Jesus provides. And he provides abundantly. He provides above and beyond. Jesus doesn't just like turn around and pull a bottle of wine out of his hat. They fill up six jars that each hold 30 gallons. He makes 180 gallons of wine. 
And it's not just any old wine. It's wine that's easily recognizable as being of the highest quality. And so the moral of the story is that we should drink hundreds of gallons of wine, and it should be good wine. Let's pray. No, no. That's not the moral of the story. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what Jesus is giving us a picture of is that in the midst of need, in the midst of crisis and panic, in the midst of potential embarrassment, he enters in and he provides abundantly. He's giving us a special picture of that. If you follow the news, you know that over the summer there was this emergency in Thailand where these 12 teenage boys who were on a soccer team along with their coach were exploring a cave and they had hiked and climbed and crawled through about two and a half miles into this cave. And while they were doing that outside, it started to rain. And the, the creeks and the lakes and the underground water started to rise. And when they went to go back, they, they found that they couldn't go back, that the passages were blocked, that parts of the cave were flooded. And they were in this cave uh, alone in the pitch dark with their coach, these 12 boys and their coach, for four days before... Uh, some rescue, military rescue divers actually using scuba tanks made it and found them. And for the next week or so, they were trying to figure out how do we get these boys who are trapped out of there. And they were sort of perched on this ledge on some high ground above the water. And they started to slowly, because they could only bring what they were carrying with them, with their scuba suits, bring them some uh, provisions. They brought them those emergency solar-looking blankets to keep them warm. They brought a doctor in to give them some medical attention. And what they were telling uh, the world and what the government was telling their parents was that this was the beginning of the rainy season. And it probably wasn't safe to let these boys come traveling through the cave because it's so technical and so dangerous. And that the safest thing to do would be to just let the rainy season end and then bring them out once the water level goes down. The problem is that the rainy season had just started literally that week, and it lasts for four months. And so if you, if you follow the news, you know that actually two weeks after this started, they did rescue the boys. They did bring them out in this uh, incredibly courageous and heroic rescue mission. But, but in this moment, they're telling these kids, I don't know what they told the kids, they're telling their parents, they're telling the world, yeah, we're going to get them out. It's going to be four months. And you can imagine that if you are the parent of one of these kids, or if you are one of these kids yourself, you don't want to wait four months. You want help now. You want intervention now. You want rescue now. You want them to provide for this need now. And instead they were being told that they just had to wait. I think it's easy to look at a story like this in John 2 and say, well, yeah, that's good for them. They had a, mo- they had a moment of need They had a moment of panic. They had a moment of crisis. And Jesus just showed up and solved their problems in a tangible way. I feel like in my life, God is usually just telling me to wait. I feel like he hasn't solved all my problems. He hasn't shown up and taken care of my needs in a tangible way. He hasn't kept this loved one from dying. He didn't give me the score on the test or the MCAT that I wanted. He hasn't solved all the brokenness and pain in the, in the relationships that I have. Even though I've been here for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks and I'm showing up and I'm trying my hardest, he hasn't solved the fact that I feel like I'm totally alone and no one really knows me. He hasn't taken away my depression or my anxiety or my eating disorder or my addiction. He, he hasn't shown up. And we could be tempted to get into a mindset where we are looking up at God and we're saying, God, 
can I get a little help here? I mean, can you help me with just this one thing? Would you give me just one win here? Have you ever felt like that? I have. And and what we're doing in those moments is that we're actually forgetting or taking for granted the fullness of what God has done for us and the fullness of what God promises that he will do for us in the fullness of time. We forget that if you have put your faith in Jesus, that he has given you the gift of his Holy Spirit through which, according to Romans 5, the love of God has been poured into your heart, the Spirit which indwells you, which is inside you, this Spirit which the Bible says is not a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. We forget that He has spoken to us, that He's given us His Word to be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, to guide us, to show us where to go. We, we forget that Jesus has given us his body and blood, that he's died for us on the cross to make you forgiven and clean and whole before him. He's actually given us a lot in the midst of our need. And he's actually promised us that in those moments of need, he'll be with us. Psalm 30 says that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He says... In particular, in those places of need and panic and crisis, I will be with you. You will experience my nearness in a special way. Where do you feel in need right now? What's causing you anxiety? What's causing you worry? What's causing you disappointment? The invitation of Jesus is that he can actually transform those moments into moments of joy because it is precisely in those moments that we can experience the nearness of Jesus who loves us. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is what are the circumstances that we need? What are the conditions that we require in order to experience joy? Do we need joy plus a 4.0? Sorry, Jesus plus a 4.0. Do we need Jesus plus a bid to a top-tier fraternity or sorority? Do we need Jesus plus a great, cute, fun, popular, attentive boyfriend or girlfriend? Do we need Jesus plus the respect and admiration of everybody around us? Do we need Jesus plus a really cool summer internship at a bank that people can't pronounce? Or is the fullness of God's love and grace in Jesus enough? It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Jesus actually transforms our need into joy because it is in our need that he is with us and he provides for us with himself. Jesus transforms our need. He also transforms our normalcy. This is a story that's, that's remarkable in many ways but there's elements of it that are surprisingly normal, surprisingly routine and unimportant even. Think about what Jesus uses in this miracle. What material does he use? Water. 
the most basic, the most common substance, the most prevalent substance in the whole world. He uses water. And he doesn't just even use drinking water. These jars, we are told, are for the water that is for the, the purification rites for the Jewish religion. That means that these, this, these jars of water are part of the daily, monotonous, repetitive, religious cycle. There's something that you do again and again and again because you're supposed to. We have things in our life all the time. This is like that Bible verse we have above our bed or on our laptop. This is like showing up every morning and trying to read your Bible. This is like showing up to something like RUF or church. This is like trying to pray before a meal. This is the normal repetitive religious stuff that we do all the time. He uses water. Uh, Secondly, think about the people that Jesus uses as the instruments in this miracle. Jesus is there. He's the Son of God. He does not touch the water. His mother is there, the Blessed Virgin, the one who was chosen by God that Gabriel the angel showed up to and told her she was chosen to bear the Savior of the world. She does not touch the water. His disciples are there. The the chosen one, the first people that the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon, the people who are going to be given the job of casting out demons in his name and spreading the message of God's love to every corner of the earth, they don't touch the water. The bride and the groom don't touch it. The master of the feast doesn't touch it. None of these people know about it. Who touches the water? It's the servants. It's the least important people there. It's the lowliest people there. God delights in using lowly people and humble people and unimportant things to do his work. He loves it. And, and then lastly, think about where this wedding takes place. I'm sorry, where this miracle takes place at a, at a wedding. Not only is this Jesus' uh, first miracle, but this is the first thing he does with his new disciples. And, and you can imagine... If it was up to me and I was the Lord of heaven and earth, the one through whom all things were made, and I called my disciples, like, why doesn't he take them up on a mountain and show them amazing truths? Why doesn't he lead them out into the desert and pray with them? He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes them to the neighborhood wedding of a family friend. And while, of course, weddings are a big deal, especially if you're in it, and it's a big deal in the life of, of the community, it's a very commonplace thing. It happens all the time. Hundreds of thousands of them a year in this country. And unless you're a celebrity, it's usually not very newsworthy. It's a commonplace thing. This is the least flashy miracle imaginable. And no one even knows about it, except for less than 10 people at this wedding. Because it's into tedious religious repetition It's into unimportant, humble, lowly activity in people. It's into commonplace and everyday that Jesus is at work in your life. And if you are lucky, if you are blessed, you might experience some mountaintop times. Some kumbaya, hallelujah moments where things are really, really special. I've been fortunate to have some of those experiences. I know some of you have too. But God delights to work in our lives and through our lives in the ordinary, commonplace times. And he can actually transform them into moments of celebration and joy because he is using them to do his work in the world. So when you are doing your homework and exhausting yourself in whatever 
corner of this campus you tend to go to to do that? And you do it all day, and then the next day you got to do it again, and then the next day you got to do it again, and again, and again, and again. That tedious repetition. When you have those social conversations and you're really trying to put yourself out there and meet new people and you find that you're just having the exact same conversation again and again and again what you do this summer where are you from what do you want to major in and like nothing magical is happening no deep connections are made and you still feel alone when you show up at something like RUF every week or you crack your bible every morning and you're hoping to have some kind of connection and you feel like nothing magical is really happening it's It's in these kinds of moments that God says he is going to change your life. That he is going to transform your experience of normalcy into one of joy. My first job out of college was at a a company called Music Today, which is just west of Charlottesville, not too far from here. This is a, a, a music marketing and ticketing company. And they have as their clients band fan clubs. So like the Dave Matthews Band fan club is one of the clients of this company. And they have deals with concert venues where they get a certain number of tickets, 100 tickets or 400 tickets or 500 tickets, that they are allowed to sell exclusively on their own website to their own fan club members. And so what happens is that Dave Matthews Band fan club will get 500 tickets from Nissan Pavilion up in D.C. to sell through their, their fan club website to their fan club members. And Nissan Pavilion will print out 500 physical tickets with actual rows and seats numbers, and they would mail them to this company, and it would land on my desk in this huge envelope of 500 tickets. And I would have to go into this digital manifest and build rows of seats. I would have to physically look at the ticket, find a seat number and a row number, and type it in. That's ticket one, 500 times, okay? And then I had to go to the list of the 500 people who had bought tickets and click and drag their names one at a time into the seats that I had just built. I did this all day for a year. My last day was not a sad day. And and I would get get back to, to my home and I would just be exhausted. And I would just feel totally spent. And I had been so bored all day. I I, I became an expert at finding full-length movies for free in 26 parts on YouTube. They've they've cracked down on this stuff, but this was a long time ago, and uh, you could get away with some of that stuff at the time. Just felt so worthless. Just felt like I haven't done anything that a freshman in computer science couldn't make a program that could do this in two seconds. Where in your life are you feeling tedious? Where in your life are, are you feeling just bored from the re- repetition of the motions that you're going through? Where in your life are you feeling unimportant and unnoticed? The good news of the gospel is that, is that if you believe in Jesus, I know not everyone here believes in Jesus, but if you believe in Jesus, if you are following after him, that he will transform those things into moments of joy because he will be using them to work in your life. That he sees your efforts at homework as a gift from him to you as an opportunity for you to grow, to learn, as, a, as, as, the, as the gateway to the future endeavors that he has laid out for you, that God can use those boring, repetitive social conversations that you've had out at parties or you've had on rush dates, and he might be using that to, to bring the best friend who's going to walk with you for the rest of your life. 
that God is actually using that daily six minutes you try to spend reading your Bible and saying a prayer before you fall asleep or before you go to class in the morning. And he's using it to transform you into a creature of love and peace and joy and worship. That God is actually at work in these things. I think we can start to believe that if we really believe in Jesus, if we really follow him and obey him, then we're actually going to lose all our joy. Because we can't have any more fun. And what we have to do is have a smile on our face as we go through the drudgery of being a good Christian and pretending like it's really meaningful to us. I'm not really in for that. I think what we have to do is to start to cultivate hearts like these servants. That hopeful, expectant trust that this ordinary, normal, commonplace, unimportant thing that I am doing is actually a part of something miraculous. Something momentous. Something grand. Something eternal. That God cares about us enough to use us in those lowly places to work in us and to work through us because he's with us in all that we do. 10 or 15 years, this uh, commercial came out for a new hotel that was opening up in Las Vegas, the Wynn Las Vegas, named after this famous hotel magnate named Steve Wynn. I think he might have gotten in trouble for something. I'm not endorsing him or his hotel, okay? Just bear bear with me. And uh, this commercial came out and it was a really famous commercial and it got a it got, it got a ton of good press, and the commercial is this. It's Steve Wynn standing there, and he's saying, Hi, I'm Steve Wynn, and this is my new hotel. That's the whole commercial. You can, you can, you, you can YouTube it, okay? Steve Wynn, hotel, commercial. Hi, I'm Steve Wynn, and this is my new hotel. And people freaked out. At this commercial, people love this commercial that was seen as groundbreaking. Now, now why is that? In, in an age where you've got to have a, a famous model or actor, or you've got to be really clever and witty and funny, you've got to make people laugh, why was this commercial so great? Well, at, at, as soon as he said, and this is my new hotel, it pans back and it turns out that he's standing on the very top of his hotel. Like, it looks like he's about to fall off. And his hotel is this monstrous thing. It's this huge hotel that towers over the Las Vegas Strip, and it's all paneled in gold-tinted glass. So it literally shines like a huge golden gem in the middle of the desert. This was a great commercial because of what he was standing on. It was meaningful. It was powerful. It was moving because of what he was standing on. And so as you guys walk through those seasons where you are in need, in panic, in crisis, in brokenness, and of course you, you all are, and of course you all will. And as you walk through those seasons in life where things are just normal, just tedious, just unimportant, and you all will, that those, that those moments are actually can be joyful because of what you're standing on. Because of the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God for you in Christ. He actually wants to give you a life of joy now because he will be with you and will be working in you. And he is preparing a day when, as Tolkien says, everything sad will come untrue, where every moment will be fullness of joy and sheer thrill and exhilaration of the fullness of God's love for you in Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your love and mercy. Lord Jesus, we... We want joy. We want to experience lives of joy, moments of joy. 
of thrill, of exhilaration, of fullness, of satisfaction. But so much of our life feels like it's just broken. So much of our life feels like it's just blah, it's just normal and unimportant and everyday. Lord, thank you for the assurance through this story that it is in those places that you will be with us and be at work in us. Please give us eyes to see it so we might rejoice in how good you are. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.